Good evening. I'd like to call to order this January 25th, 2022 school board closed meeting budget work session number one and special meeting. Ms. Goodell, could you please call the roll? Yes, Dr. Dinick. Here. Ms. Downs. Here. Dr. Gould. Here. Dr. Ortiz. Here. Mr. Regner. Here. Ms. Silverman. Here. And Ms. Tice. Here. Thank you. Thank you. Could you please join me in saying the Pledge of Allegiance? Thank you. I'd like to uh, receive a motion to adopt the agenda. Move to adopt the agenda as presented. Thank you, Mr. Reiniger. Could I have a second? Thank you, Dr. Dimick. All in favor, say aye. aye. Yes. Aye. Any opposed, say no. Okay, thank you. Okay, we will go um, on to section two of our closed meeting. If uh, I could have someone please read us into closed. Yes, Ms. Silverman. Pursuant to the Virginia Freedom of Information Act, I move that the board convene a closed meeting for the following purpose to consider, or discuss or consider the identified subject matter, legal matters under section 2.2-3711A8, in particular consultation with legal counsel employed or retained by the public body regarding specific legal matters requiring the provision of legal advice by such counsel and legal matters under section 2.2 dash 3711A7, in particular consultation with legal counsel and briefings by staff members or consultants pertaining to actual or probable lit litigation, where such consultation or briefing and open meeting would adversely affect the negotiating or litigating posture of the public body. Thank you, Ms. Silverman. May I have a second? Thank you, Mr. Ranger. All those in favor say aye. 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 Any opposed say no. Ms. Goodell. Thank you. Dr. Noonan, do you want to Will we have an estimate of how long we'll be enclosed? I believe we're going to be enclosed for right about an hour. So this will be a longer close than normal. Um, we're going to stay in the room here. And Miss um, Hamid and Miss Goodell, thank you so much. We're going to uh, turn the TVs and or the stream off. So we'll be um, enclosed here in just a second. Welcome back, everyone. We're now in section 2.03. May I have a motion to reconvene to open meeting, please? Move to reconvene to open meeting. Thank you. May I have a second? Second. Thank you. All those in favor, say aye. Yes. All those opposed, say no. Ms. Goodell? A motion carries. Thank you. We're now on section 3.01. May I have a motion to certify the closed meeting? Yes, Dr. Dimick? Whereas the City of Falls Church School Board has convened a closed meeting on this date pursuant to an affirmative recorded vote and in accordance with the provisions of the Virginia Freedom of Information Act and whereas section 2.2-3711B 
of the Code of Virginia requires the certification by this school board that such closed meeting was conducted in conformity with Virginia law. Now, therefore, be it resolved that the Falls Church City School Board hereby certifies that to the best of each member's knowledge, only public business matters lawfully exempted from open meeting requirement by Virginia law were discussed in the closed meeting to which this certification applies and only such public business matters as were identified in the motion convening the closed meeting were heard, discussed, or considered. Thank you, Dr. Dimmick. May I have a second, please? Second. Thank you, Dr. Ortiz. Ms. Goodell, could you please call the roll? Uh, yes, Dr. Dimmick. Yes. Ms. Down. Yes. Dr. Gould. Yes. Dr. Ortiz. Yes. Mr. Wright. Yes. Ms. Silverman. Yes. And Ms. Tice. Yes. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Goodell. We're now on section uh, four, which is our work session and FY23 budget work session number one and 4.01, our Sustainability Academy. And I'll turn it over to Dr. Noonan. Thank you, Madam Chair, and good evening, everybody. It's great to see all of you tonight. Um, it is a pleasure to uh, be able to um, welcome the team uh, this evening that William, uh, Mr. Bates, our Chief Academic Officer, is going to introduce here in just a second to talk about the work of our Sustainability Academy. Um, I wanna take you back three years um, when we were in the planning stages of the new high school uh, and finalizing design. Many of you know um, that our design was built, built on the tenets and principles of sustainability to the extent that uh, we have um, hundreds of geothermal wells in our, um, our playing field. Uh, we, have, uh, we have a PV array agreement getting ready to be signed to ensure that we have solar arrays on the roof. Uh, and we also are a lead gold building, um, not to mention a variety of other sustainability aspects to the building. Um, uh, and so as a consequence of that, um, about three years ago, we started talking with some of the science teachers about um, some curriculum that might be associated with sustainability. And the group of folks that you're going to hear from this evening are, are going to tell you how they ran with the idea. Um, and um, what I was able to do over the course of the three years is work closely with the Ed Foundation around some additional funding uh, that may be available for a sustainability academy. But what has happened since sort of these initial conversations is that it has sort of taken on, um, taken on its, a really great life um, of its own, if you will, uh, because of the leadership of the folks that are on the screen and others. So um, this evening, um, I want to uh, just call your attention to um, the great work of the teachers. And that's why it's on tonight. Um, and I'll turn it over to Mr. Bates. Thank you, Dr. Noonan. And, and good evening, Madam Chair Downs, Vice Chair Gould, and members of the board. And behalf, on behalf of the sustainability team, it's our pleasure to be able to share the work that we've done over the past couple of years on the sustainability project. The sustainability program started as a vision and it's developed into an intentional plan that includes short range goals of helping students to deepen their understanding of 21st century problems that face our, face our planet, but also engaging students more deeply in project-based learning that yields sustainable outcomes for our local and global environments. Our work also includes long-range planning for the enhancement of our CTE program by bringing on an IB CP or career program and a governor's school that will provide students with even greater levels of equity and access as we continue our charge of IB for all. 
Our curriculum and instruction team and the Meridian leadership team have worked over the past couple of years to support our CTE teachers with this vision. This creative thinking has allowed some of our teachers, some of whom you'll hear from tonight, to pre present their work on a national forum and also receive national recognition for their accomplishments in the field of STEM. They've been able to highlight the work and showcase how our brand new state-of-the-art high school <clears throat> will help support this curriculum. Speaking more specifically around some of the examples Dr. Noonan shared with solar panels, geothermal heating, and cooling. PBL, or project-based learning, isn't something that's new to our curriculum. And we're proud of the fact that our students have had opportunities to learn about the hydroponics program and the aquaponics projects, air quality and ecosystem monitoring, gardening, and automated approaches to farming over the years. Also, we know that PBL is best practice in education and it aligns to the rigors of IB. This academy prioritizes the PBL approach and learning in all content areas. We are well aware of the fact that Virginia has been moving away from multiple choice tests and moving towards performance-based tasks. And the research shows that engagement and connection to real-world concerns, real-world issues, is one of the most beneficial features of instruction. And we're excited about this unique opportunity to really embark on something that we know that many other school districts in the Commonwealth aren't able to offer through their curriculum selections. So without further ado, I would like to introduce our presenters this evening. We have with us this evening, uh, Ms. Valerie Hardy, Dave Sorensis, Carrie Pollock, Dr. Ray Ruor, Kenny George, Steve Knight, and our Director of Curriculum and Instruction, Ms. Julie Macrina. So after the presentation, we're more than happy to answer or address any questions you might have around the work that's taken place, as well as our continued vision for the future of sustainability in Falls Church City Public Schools. So, Ms. Hardy. Well, good evening, everyone. I am happy to be here tonight to do um, what I love to do, which is set up our teachers to shine and talk to you about the awesomeness that they have been um, leading and doing for the past um, three years. And um, Dr. Noonan sort of started this off best. It, it really began with like, what do you think as a conversation? And um, where I think I've had the most fun um, really sitting beside this team um, as they've done this work is being a part of the conversations that have really unfolded organically. Um, I think, no pun intended, organically. Um, I really think what has been um, of great value as I've watched this team sort of take this and run is that it hasn't been um, insular, right? Meaning it's not just been a science effort or a CTE effort or a design effort. It really has been, how does this intersect with the work happening in English or language and literature? How does this dovetail with what's happening in mathematics? How does this dovetail with what happens um, across the curricular areas that touch the work um, happening in our schools? So 
as we think about the why, right, defining sustainability became some of the, the natural starting point um, that this team and, and actually a larger team of curriculum leaders really dug into, which is what is sustainability going to sound like and look like as we think about building this from the ground up? Um, and so defining it, it kind of came this, this natural progression that you can see here on the screen. Um, and as we started to think about how that intersects with then a mission um, that aligns to the work that we do as an IB school system, it kind of bled into um, a mission that, that really beautifully represents um, not only the assets that you know, Mr. Bates and Dr. Noonan mentioned in um, the features that were designed in this build up, building sort of um, intentionally, but really what does it mean to really embrace sustainability in terms of living out the principles of sustainability and helping our students really be shepherds of this as they go about their lives um, and, and look at career paths that really will help to, to etch that in the, the world ahead. And so the mission kind of unfolded to a vision. So, yep, the next slide, thank you. Um, that, that really leads to now this academy. So as you think about you know, the work that you're going to hear our teachers talk about today, it really is taking this very um, small nugget of an idea and bringing some concreteness to it in terms of putting a mission and a vision to it. Um, and, and, and it didn't sort of become an, a, another thing. Um, it kind of bled to what we are already doing. So one of the things that I wanna make very clear as, as I sort of set them up to talk to you about the work is on the next slide, you'll see um, something that's very familiar to many of us that are, are sort of doing this work um, are the UN goals for sustainable development. And on there are, are pillars that sort of we, we got more um, knowledge about. Some of us got more knowledge about. I think the three of you um, that you'll hear about uh, them talk about, they had a lot more knowledge. But for, for those of us that weren't as familiar, um, the economic, environmental, and social pillar became terms that we dug into. And as we did that, on the next slide, if we could go to um, that, please, um, it became clear how it supported our work in Falls Church City how our courses and the work that we've been doing over the scope of the years and becoming um, a really good NYP and DP school system aligned, how many of the courses that we are doing in our CTE program already provided our students a pathway that allowed for that exploration through the design process. How, as Dr. Or, uh, Mr. Bates mentioned, um, our project and problem-based learning that's happening in many of our curricular areas are already there. And as we started to think about field experiences and seminars and special projects that could be enhanced through this program, it all sort of made sense. And, and as we looked at what would not be a new thing, the next slide really lays out how it aligns to our mission and our vision and our work. So our placemat that we're currently working through really incorporated all of these tenants. And on the next slide, when we started to think about how this launched into some of the work we did to start off this school year um, at convocation and digging into those sustainable goals, it became even more concrete. So for example, when you think about goal one, no poverty, well, what's coming up next week? Give day, right? A division-wide effort aligned to service as action. When you think about goal six, goals 14 and 15, clean water, life below water, life and land, that's work that's happening in our science departments across the division. 
when you think about reduced inequalities or decent work, economic growth, those are things happening in our mathematic courses, individuals and societies, and in our language and literature courses. These, it's happening everywhere. And as you now will hear us talk about our strategic plan on the next slide, this is work that will continue to happen. So it's not an offshoot. It's not something that's one more thing. It's not something that is new. It's work that is to the core of who we are. And, and what I wanna do before I, I stop speaking, because this is my last slide and the last you'll hear from me tonight, um, before I pass it over to Kenny George, it is, it is imperative that I, I set them up to have some relief because what I need these superheroes to, to have is some relief as they have literally built what you are about to see on their shoulders pretty much single-handedly. In addition to teaching during a pandemic, all being parents, continuing to provide amazing instruction during a pandemic, they have built new courses for this program. They have sacrificed in their summers to write new curriculum and develop new curriculum for this program. They have worked with their colleagues in other disciplines to find cross-curricular connections to support this program. And you will see as they talk to you tonight, their love and passion for this program is not waning. And so one of the things that I think we are most excited about in looking ahead to the work of the budgeted position of the coordinator is offering some teaching support to this program, but off, off also looking ahead to the curriculum development that it will provide and the relief it will provide to the superheroes who have been kind of carrying this on their shoulders. So I'm gonna stop talking. Kenny George, you get to take us away with the awesomeness that is happening every single day with the work you are doing. And thank you, thank you, thank you. Thanks, Ms. Hardy. And uh, thanks for having me here this evening to talk about um, everything. So um, I'm Kenny George. I teach uh, in the CT program at Meridian High School, specifically design, technology, and engineering. So my entry point to kind of all of this work, you can go to the next slide, was kind of like when I realized several years back, like, you know, I work with all these really awesome people and all these different departments that are just doing really cool things. And you know, I wanted to kind of grow the design program, but I also just wanted to connect dots for a lot of my students who are in design because I, I, you know, they do these things and we tend to, you know, the way this stru structure of high school is it can kind of silo off these experiences. And I was like, well, wouldn't it be great if I could kind of use design as this kind of like threat, you know, threading the, threading the needle and pulling all these things together so that students could see, you know, the connect, the interconnectedness of everything they're doing at school. So I kind of started to, you know, reach out to some of my colleagues and try to pull these interdisciplinary lessons together, kind of all under the umbrella of kind of looking at these um, pillars of sustainability and these goals um, and kind of the idea that like we teach design um, as kind of a, a skill and a trade and um, kind of an opportunity for post-secondary career readiness. But it's also like kind of a, a social and moral imperative. We, 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 we design to make things better. So here's one example of like one of the first projects. Um, Dr. Mecca and I kind of took, took a, wrote a grant and did a autonomous water monitoring with a drone. So the students in design retrofitted uh, a drone to kind of collect water samples and monitor that. So we can go to the next slide um, and just kind of go through a couple quick projects to just to kind of see some of the ways that I've tried to integrate design into other programs and also to, to kind of 
expose more students to design maybe that wouldn't have it in their schedule and maybe also you know bring students into that design program that maybe didn't know it existed and it, it was a good fit for them so here we kind of looked at right before the pandemic shut us down we were working as i think uh mr Bates was speaking earlier on kind of designing a courtyard and the old junior courtyard is kind of a demonstration project and kind of the centerpiece around it was um the farm bot which is kind of an autonomous um and um, gardening structure so it uses cnc technology to um um, garden that was the focal point and students designed other things um, such as tables out of reclaimed material they were in the process of working with the zoning department to, to build a pergola um, so different other elements there um, that kind of brought design in to kind of in there and so here's a project I did in science to kind of look at kind of you know how sustainability impacts um, communities and cities and we looked specifically at um, our own community in the WNOD trail. So I worked with uh, James Thomas in geometry and we wrote this this unit together to kind of explore kind of the engineering of a, of a bridge and talking about like, not just, okay, let's not just learn triangles, but like how do, you know, why, why build bridges? Why are the different types? What is the benefit of it? So the students kind of went through the process of doing the VDOT um, request um, RFP to kind of like design a bridge to safely move pedestrians over um, the highway or Washington Washington Boulevard rather um, kind of looking at that project as kind of a demonstration of kind of how sustainability and design kind of can improve communities um, and I think there might be one more slide up uh, yep and so just to kind of see where we landed right now so this is kind of an example of what I'm currently running kind of with my design one students um, and we're in this project right now um, as kind of an introduction so we've kind of spent the first half of the year kind of getting those foundational skills but now I'm really kind of bringing in that kind of ethos of um sustain sustainability or kind of design as like a like i said like a moral or social imperative so we're looking at like this idea of flat pack furniture but specifically school furniture for the developing world so students are kind of tasked with this idea that like um not just looking at a chair as a thing to sit at but like the idea of like you know design as a much more complex system of you know making things with re reclaimed materials or kind of reducing the kind of embodied energy or footprint of an object by maybe you know, dematerializing with less materials, making it lighter for transport so it could kind of make its way to its final destination quicker. So kind of looking at that idea that like, you know, we tend to take kind of design things for granted, but like if we think about designing from a more kind of rational and sustainable perspective, um, that can kind of improve humanity and, and have those benefits. So that's kind of some of the work that kind of has been kind of the design program has been pulling into this. And I'll, I'll throw it over to Dr. Roar now to kind of talk a little more about that. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Mr. George. Um, now I get to brag a little bit more about you and some of the projects uh, you've been working on as well. Um, I'm the technology and engineering teacher at Henderson and also the energy teacher at Meridian. So I work at both campuses. I'm fortunate to be able to do that. Um, so in the slide that you're looking at here, we have the Meridian design classes under Mr. George's leadership that have been working with the Habitat for Humanity project where the students have actually built uh, or built Adirondack chairs from reclaimed pallet wood. So the chairs ultimately were uh, donated to the families of the homes at the end of the project. And in particular, um, you know, we continue to go back to the UN uh, goals for sustainable development. And this one in particular uh, hits on goal number 11, which is sustainable cities and communities. So not only what we're doing within the walls of the school, but also within our community as well. Um, if you want to go to the next slide. So this project um, 
which is the Pallets and Planners Project, was funded by a grant from the Falls Church Education Foundation uh, this fall. And it focuses on multiple sustainability initiatives, such as interior scaping, urban gardening, uh, air quality, horticultural therapy, and upcycling. Uh, we have students at both Meridian and Henderson who have been working, um, who have been in the process of setting up the planners, building them, designing them, creating them, uh, growing the plants, watering them, maintaining them, uh, and putting them throughout the schools. And you're starting to see those taking place as you walk into um, both the schools now in the main lobby areas, but we'll also be uh, bringing more in over the next couple of weeks as well. So this definitely is a project where we provide numerous uh, real-world, hands-on, project-based experiences for the students that are involved. And in the pictures, uh, you can see where the Meridian Design classes have actually converted uh, used pallet or wood from pallets uh, into the wood planter boxes after uh, the creation of the digital designs, the planing of the rough wood pieces, um, and in some, we've started, and they've even started staining some of the uh, boxes as well. So we also have the Meridian Environmental Science and the Henderson Sustainable Design and Engineering classes that have been growing, propagating the plant materials uh, for over a year now. So, um, and then one of the other components of this is we, with some of the prefabricated planters that we have, we ensured that all of those were actually made from recycled materials and in particular tires uh, were used in um, those. So I'm now going to turn the presentation over to Mrs. Carrie Pollock. Hi, thank you. Yes, I'm Carrie Pollock. I teach earth science and environmental science at Meridian. I am an earth scientist at heart, geography, environment, all of it. And the urban farm project is the name we've given to all the approaches that we've had over the years to urban agriculture in FCCPS and specifically at MEH and Meridian. Um, these are projects that students have maintained and been recognized for, they've taken to conferences, they've gone, uh, they've received you know, presidential excellence in the environment awards. It's, it's really impressive what students um, have been able to do with some of these projects and it's been interesting getting everything uh, set up again in the new building because we moved last year and we moved all the projects with it. So um, I just wanted to point out that farming in general, the very general sense of the word is cultivating a crop to or animal to share with other people. And that's a great model for what we're doing in FCCPS. It focuses on the three main tenants that we look at in environmental sustainability, which would be um, zero waste, um, urban agriculture or finding new ways to, to grow on the land that we have and building community around these, um, these projects. And so that is what I already see happening at Meridian. Um, we're growing seeds or growing uh, plants from seeds. We're propagating them where we have indoor plants, we have outdoor plants, vegetables, succulents, trees, <laughs> very small trees at this point. Um, and we're going to tailor the projects to the interests of the kids. We also have goldfish. Uh, aquaponics is an aquaculture is strong. We have um, goldfish, whitetail, placoderms, brook trout, snails, uh, worms. I've learned a lot about vermiculture and uh, worm composting. Uh, we have potato bugs, and we're looking at getting you know uh, live specimens from all classes 
of, of life, which is really exciting, reptiles, amphibians. That's where we want to get to. Um, I really want to point out that the Urban Farm Project is inc like utterly inclusive. It includes, includes all these types of projects, but it is reaching every type of student. So we have kids at all ability levels, all grade levels, and all different interests that join in the project. So um, they might be aware of it because of an environmental science class, uh, but then they join the environmental club and the environmental club has a, a day where they're helping with the gardening. Or um, we have students in the life skills class that are in charge of watering some plants and um, pruning some of the, the leaves off of them and cleaning up. We have other students that are in charge of the laundry that we produce in the vivarium and they take care of that and bring it back to us clean and we're really proud of that uh, project. We have um, the Enviro 9 class, which is a science skills class. They have taken on the trout and the classroom. They've raised uh, trout from eggs to fingerlings, and we're just waiting to hear from the Virginia Department of um, Game and Fisheries to, to see where to go to release them and to add them back to that ecosystem. So, um, oh, we also have students that have five or six IB classes in their schedule that are also using the spaces and um, running projects of their own out of the, out of the um, spaces and through the projects that we have. And they also are getting involved in the clubs that are uh, picking up some of these initiatives. Um, I think, yeah, go ahead to the next slide. So that was the Urban Farm Project. And within that, we have the, um, the newly received uh, Falls Church Education Foundation grant to begin a pollinator garden on the campus at the secondary schools. So that means we're, we're gonna start with the 10 by 10 this year. We have um, businesses and master gardeners and Falls Church is just filled with people that want to help us pull off these projects. So this Pimmett Hills Pollinators group is donating the labor to help us uh, clear a space of land and to, to have the students design and choose which plants will be planted and why they're planted there. And um, we're talking about the importance of pollinators. They're a keystone species. If we don't have pollinators, we don't have a lot of other organisms in the ecosystem. And human development has paid no attention to pollinators. So it's, it's, it's a look at biology and you know, policy and you know, um, ethics, things like that, that all come up in these, in these projects. And, I have been blown away by the, um, the amount of help that I've been offered. I, I can't even answer all the emails uh, from the, the community and I'm gonna need um, um, Mary Beth Connolly's help to sort out the, the, the businesses that are interested in helping. And also, um, like I said, just individuals, parents and people that have a lot of experience with gardening and are really excited about some of these projects. So that's a little bit about what we're doing in the Vivarium. Thanks for having me. Hi everyone. I'm Steve Knight. I'm uh, I have <clears throat> I am privileged to uh, support uh, career technical ed at Meridian and Henderson. I'm also very privileged to work with the three of these very passionate teachers um, and kind of support them, uh, give them any anything they need, and try to uh, structure some of the things that they're doing. Um, we have a big lift ahead of us. Uh, the sustainable. Academy for Sustainable Thinking and the future of the Governor School. Uh, so there's a lot of planning that needs to happen. And I have the option, uh, the opportunity to share some of the short-term goals with you. 
So one of the first short-term goals um, we've been working on um, definitely in December, we started the work in October, um, is building a partnership program with um, Arlington County Public Schools and the city of Fairfax. Um, this is a big part of being ready for the governor's school application, but it's also an opportunity to share our amazing teachers and our amazing programs with surrounding districts. So part of um, the work that we have done is we've looked at our course program of studies. Um, we've looked at all the courses that we hope to um, use for the academy. And we're working on ways to bring um, students from Arlington and the city of Fairfax to benefit from those. Uh, next slide, please. And some of those uh, courses are here. And, and when, you, when you think of, when you see the current areas of focus, um, this is the, the big three for the, uh, the academy. Of course, we have our design classes, um, the energy, our new energy pathway, or our clear career cluster. Um, thank you to the school board for approving the next course in this uh, three course pathway um, a few months ago. And then of course our science. One of the things we are recognizing is <clears throat> in order to meet the three, three pillars, we do have to integrate as many of the subjects and humanities as we can. So we have a very interested teacher who's teaching IB global politics in Pam Mahoney. Um, she's already talking about the UN sustainable goals in her curriculum. So she's a natural connection. Um, we have the opportunity once approved by the VDOE to bring the data science class to Meridian. And this will be a huge part. Um, we're going to use focus on the curriculum to focus on more of a sustainable, uh, have a sustainable lens using that, uh, the data and all of that from sustainable systems. And of course, we're connecting our computer science classes with our brand new IB digital societies class and also computer science. So there's a lot of things that we're marketing. In year one, we've actually worked together to create our first uh, one pager. Uh, our posters are throughout the building to start to inform the students um, about the Academy for Sustainable Thinking. And this is just an example. Um, it's also links where um, we're giving all the students, giving them more information about all the opportunities that they would have joining the Academy and also how to get started, um, what courses to take, who to contact. As Carrie mentioned and Kenny and Ray, we have so many co-curricular projects and extracurricular projects that are happening um, inside the class and outside. So we wanna give everyone the opportunity to join in some capacity. Um, we also wanna help guide their course selection as they move forward. Um, I think next is uh, Dave Sorensis, who's gonna show some, a little bit more of our short-term staffing goals. Thanks, Steve, and good evening, everybody. Uh, thanks for having us here tonight. Uh, Carrie, uh, Kenny Ray, that was amazing. And it's going to be a really nice segue into uh, what I'm going to be talking about, which is the staffing to support this academy. Uh, we, we have two kind of key pieces, right? We have the 11 month contracts that have been put out there for our science and CTE teachers. 
And this, this is really just to support the work and allow teachers to be teachers, right? You just heard them talk about the farm bot and the, uh, the autonomous drones and the building, all these like cool, innovative things. Uh, you know, surprisingly, they don't happen without a lot of planning, right? So they've been doing all of that on their own time. What we're looking to do is build that in with these 11 month contracts, uh, you know, the, the innovative teaching practices, like we just said, and the project management, all of those things. Uh, the other really, really key piece here to allow the teachers to be teachers is the program coordinator. Uh, this person is, of course, going to take on a heavy lift. They're also going to have a teaching responsibility. Uh, but along with that teaching responsibility is going to be uh, coordinating the efforts of this entire team, right? They're going to be the leader. You know, we have to have somebody that's kind of heading up the show. Uh, they're going to collaborate with our teachers. We talked about the IB Global Politics. We already have some of those kind of integrations happening. We need to continue to have that happening. You know, I walk around uh, the other day, I walked in the classroom, I heard another teacher in that department saying how excited they were about this. So, you know, what we've already built are some just fantastic ambassadors for this program. Uh, and that's what we want to continue to promote. And then there's two kind of really, really big pieces as I'm going to move forward in a second to look at our kind of long term goals. Uh, we have a, the governor's school, which we've mentioned a couple of times, which requires uh, quite a quite hefty application process. And we also have the IBCP program that we're looking to implement. So both of those are going to fall onto this coordinator position. And that's huge, right? Because with all of this being on the coordinator, it's really going to allow for the people you just heard talking to have the opportunity to focus on continuing to be innovative and really just kind of push this program forward. Uh, if you can move forward to the next slide uh, and even go one more. What we have, I'm kind of going a few years down the road um, in 23-24, what we're looking to be is a fully authorized IBCP program. Uh, Carrie, I thought, mentioned inclusivity, which is so huge, right? We're not just talking about this being, uh, you know, we talk IB, you think that's exclusive. Not at all. Uh, quite the opposite. We see a vision where this actually would allow a pathway for our ESOL students to be able to enroll in the CP program. Uh, of course, we'll still have, it's going to be available to everyone, but it's going to open up some brand new pathways. Uh, the governor's school application, that's what we're going to be looking to complete that. And then by 24, 25, I uh, hope to be fully authorized and accepting full-time students. Go back a couple of years, our more immediate goals. Um, yeah, go forward. <laughs> Sorry, forward in the slides, backwards in time. Uh, what we're going to be in spring 22, we have these two, the courses that are actually adopted, the Energy Demand and the IB Digital Society. And then we also have the TSA Club. And then looking to next year, uh, we're going to have a capstone course, which is going to be pretty incredible. That's going to be associated with Energy and Power, where they can um, work on the work on a capstone project. And then the personal professional skills course, that's really what TOK is the DP program. Uh, it, it's a course that's going to go alongside all the anybody that's looking to get this IBCP uh, diploma would enroll in that. So as you can see, we have a pretty thorough set of uh, things that we're trying to accomplish over the next couple of years. But I really do think we have the, the right people on board uh, and we, we hope to have everybody's support. Thank you so much for taking the time to hear us tonight. So before we uh, turn it over to questions, um, I wanna just say thanks to the team for, for being out tonight. I know you've got an early morning tomorrow, so I hope you'll stick on for a few questions in case the board has them. Um, but I also wanted to say, why, why are they here tonight? And this was one of the, we went through the list of um, new items that you wanted to hear about. And this was one of the new items that you all wanted to hear about as part of 
um, your uh, work sessions going forward. So this is the first one that was slotted in. And part of um, the reason that we did this one is sort of serendipitous because um, there also is a budgetary request uh, in the superintendent's proposed budget that I think you heard about tonight. So um, with that, Madam Chair, we'd certainly um, entertain questions that you all may have. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Noon, and thank you to everyone for joining us this evening. We really appreciate it, and it was a really exciting presentation. I'll turn it over for questions. Uh, does anyone? Yes, Ms. Silverman. Thank you for explaining the program. It sounds so much, so incredible, um, something that I wish I had had the opportunity to take when I was in high school, and um, really fitting into the IB curriculum. Um, so everything about it sounds fantastic. I'm just curious, how many students are currently enrolled in the program? And do you think that adding more programming would in, would and expanding the programming would encourage others to join? And do, do you have any sort of idea, maybe, I don't know if you could even guess about how much, how many more it would attract? So Mr. Knight, I know we can talk a little bit about current enrollment. I know Mr. Dr. Rewar, you have the current class, right? Since we were piloting this year of students. Um, and then I'd, I'd be happy to talk a little bit about some of our outreach efforts, um, Ms. Silverman, after that. Um, yes, yeah, so um, currently um, the three uh, teachers that are here today have been really promoting the sustainability in all their classes. And um, we have been working on, you know, getting all the students to, to step up and be part of it. A lot of them are showing their interest and, and passion by doing these extracurricular, co-curricular activities. Um, our next step is uh, portfolio-based, um, taking uh, what they're learning and reflecting and putting it in one place so we can showcase it. I know Mr. George has created an environment um, and, and maybe many of you have met the sustainability ambassadors. Um, so we've been taking uh, all the students that are interested in the sustainability academy and moving them into this Schoology group where we can start to collaborate and kind of communicate with them directly. The, the next step is, you know, we, we haven't got to the place where they're signing on the dotted line. We are really kind of trying to find out who is really passionate and how we can integrate everywhere they are. Um, so we are collecting more information. As you know, you know um, the design class that Kenny teaches, the energy power, the energy uh, class that Ray teaches, and the science classes that Carrie teaches, all these students are interested. We had talked about a cohort model in the beginning, um, starting with eighth grade and starting with freshmen this year. And so that's why Ray and, and um, Kenny are really uh, talking to the kids, helping them guide them to the next course structure. Uh, the next course uh, selection so they can continue learning and the sustainability kind of in, in the academy. I really think that as we expand this program, we hope to see many of the students from the surrounding districts join us. Um, that will help our numbers um, in all our classes. We have um, the courses that we have promoted for the partnership are classes that we naturally see growing and increasing by sections. And we are predict, uh, predicting that the support from the partnership will help move that forward. Valerie, I hope I answered that. Absolutely. I think too, Ms. Silverman, um, as we are op op opening this up to other jurisdictions, this has been um, a real concrete question that we've had to address, right? 
How do we make sure that our students have opportunity to access courses? What's the right number as we um, send students to the Arlington Career Center and want to reciprocate? How do we open this up to Fairfax? Um, engage interest. You know, we did set a hard number at 30 seats, trying to make sure that we have those seats accessible um, and have um, been working with Mr. Sowers, our director of counseling, to say, you know, beginning, end of the day for accessibility. And then that slide where we pointed out the, the courses that we're offering um, so that we could make sure that we had accessibility um, for our students first in Falls Church. They have obviously started the enrollment process, so we're getting them locked in first and then opening it up to um, those two jurisdictions to be able to get the students in. But one of the unique nuances um, to sort of life in, in our secondary scheduling is um, we do offer so many um, courses and course offerings for our students that it does become sort of this unique pathway for our students, especially as we're talking about pathways and programming um, that I do see us refining as we go through time. And so one of the things that I think historically that we've looked at, and Dave, please chime in at the high school, it's been, we've had courses that we've just sort of continued to, to offer and offer and offer and offer. Um, and I think as a secondary team, we've had some, some lively conversations this year around, we need to start looking at how do we get, get really, really strategic about what we're offering. One, for, for the purposes of our students getting what they need, right? But two, so that the bandwidth of our teachers isn't stretched so thin that they're teaching five and six different preps um, through the scope of their day and feeling that they are instructional bandwidth to be able to sustain um, is so far. So it's been sort of a twofold conversation, Ms. Silverman, that as we bring things in, we also have to look at what is the lifespan of courses? How many students are enrolling them? How long do we keep them to make sure students can still access them to graduate and get what they need? But then what are we perhaps looking at waning, which are hard conversations to have, but also the right conversations that we have to have. If I may add just a couple things to those two things that were said. Is that right? Um, I just want to point out as uh, Kenny and Ray and Steve and I have worked on what it look, what it what you have to do to become a sustainability scholar, it has been important to us all along that every level of kid can achieve it. So there will be students that are going for the standard diploma that are able to achieve some uh, certification. And there will be kids that are going for the highest uh, courses that we offer that will be able to fit this into their uh, list of achievements. So um, historically, we've seen students that are disengaged in school be able to find these projects as a way back into something, you know, interesting at school. And so we, we don't want to lose that. We don't want to make this be an honors program that only a certain type of student could possibly accomplish. There are varying levels of becoming a sustainability scholar, and it's just really valuable to all of us in the um, courses we teach to have varying levels of students. So I would say the number is high, um, maybe not to start next year, but it will. I, I would think that there will be a lot of students at all grade levels that are getting some sort of recognition for their role in these sustainability projects. Vice Chair Downs. Yes, Mr. Reitz. Yeah, and, and I would also add, um, so in addition to the course sequence, that we've um, shared or the specific courses that were outlined, one of the goals of this um, project coordinator would be to infuse 
the sustainability thinking or sustainable thinking, as well as um, some of the projects or the project-based learning or um, problem-based learning around the sustainable thinking across all classes, across all curricular areas. And so, again, um, we we do envision and, and anticipate an increased number of students matriculating into these courses. But for those students who aren't, we would still be providing opportunities for this type of level of engagement around real world project-based um, learning opportunities with the sustainable thinking in mind. That's great. Thank you, Mr. Bateson. And thank you, Ms. Pollock. I think that's a great point. We often hear about IB for all. And so I think we want to make sure it's accessible for all of our students. Thank you. And I think Ms. Silverman, you had a follow-up question? Yeah. So I, I'm still trying to understand all of this, to be honest. Um, and I understand there's this future piece, which I think you guys really did a great job explaining about attracting students from other school districts and um, but there are pro there are currently classes already in already being implemented. Is that right? So do we have an enrollment number for how many students we have in the current classes? I, we do. Oh, go ahead. Do you have that at your fingertips? Otherwise, we could take it as a follow up question. That's what I was yeah. just going to say. We can get that information to you. That would be really helpful. Thank you. And again, I, I do love that it's accessible for all. Um, and especially after COVID, re-engaging students become interested in something again, I think is crucially important right now. So that was a very good point. So thank you very much. Yes, Dr. Dimmick. Thank you very much for your presentation. I really enjoyed it. Um, so I have a freshman um, who very much enjoys Mr. George's class. So um, I guess I've been, you know, he has to pick his courses for next year and sort of looking ahead. And there are very few holes in your schedule to take like cool classes that are outside the sort of core math, history, English. And so I'm wondering what adding that IBCP does, because to me, as a parent looking at this with a kid, that's eating up an elective that I could be doing design or I could be doing energy or I could be doing one of these fun classes why do I want to do that one? Mr. Sorensis and Ms. McCrina, do you want to talk about our visit to Mount Vernon and some of what we just uncovered in the IBCP benefits that we saw? Yeah, so we, we went over to Mount Vernon and we actually got to go into a classroom um, and it, there, was, there was a substitute there that day, but we still got to speak to the kiddos. And it was, it was pretty interesting to hear why they were involved in the class and they were just throwing out there, you know, the things that they were interested in. They were all real world types of activities and there, there was, uh, you know, medical related, right? I, I can't remember all the specifics, but they were, they were so passionate about why they decided to be in the CP program. They said it really gave them an opportunity to learn about something that they were actually interested in. Uh, and I think that's kind of the goal, right? And that's what you're alluding to. We really want to kind of drive that interest again as we come back. Can I, can I add to that just a little bit? Because I think one of the things that Valerie, uh, uh, Ms. Hardy suggested that may be helpful, because I think one of the things we worry about is offering so much that you end up with so many choices that you kind of, it, it's really hard to pick and, and choose. So I think one of the things that 
these folks have done a really great job of so far this year is sort of beginning to weed out those courses that have traditionally had really low numbers or courses that don't need to be taught every year, but could perhaps be taught every other year um, to, to make a core set of choices more available as opposed to continuing to um, diffuse enrollment across so many sections. So um, hopefully it's a both and as opposed to um, the tyranny of war. And I think that was one of the things, um, and, and please, Mr. Knight, you were also there with us on that tour that we saw um, Dr. Dimmick in the CP sort of pathway that, that definitely connects to the sustainability courses is that the connection of the courses sort of naturally make this IB pathway accessible. And they're in many of the courses that we either are offering or will dovetail to the courses that are being built in the sustainability program. So to Dr. Noonan's point, as we're looking at the courses that we offer and are also waning, the selections become streamlined and create the natural pathway for students. You know, and to that point that Ms. Pollock really made earlier, the thing about CP, I think that we all came back completely jazzed about is it is so accessible and inclusive for our students that are second language learners. It, it does not have some of the same um, curricular uh, requirements in terms of prerequisites and it creates pathways for our L's and, and an opportunity to graduate with an IB um, certification the same, not the same rigor perhaps as maybe the DP program, but still a pathway in the CP program that is recognized through the IB. And so for us, it, it, I think it charged us a little bit more so in this work, seeing that it will increase the number of students that potentially will graduate with an IB diploma through our school system, but more importantly, will reach the kids that we, we know we're not getting in terms of our IB graduates. So um, I think it's a twofold, right? It's streamlining, but it's also creating those natural pathways so that when Casey is looking at his course selection, he'll see, oh, when I take this course with Mr. George, two years of it, oh, that creates a, a CP pathway. How awesome is that? And I didn't even know it, right? It just happens organically. And, and one of the things to keep in mind too is that the only requirement of IBCP is the, um, the personal and professional or preparation skills course. Um, and the way that's gonna run, I think Mr. Sorensis brought it up, um, it was like our TOK. So it is a semester class. So it would be a semester junior class and a semester senior class. And so we're really envisioning and, and the way Mount Vernon High School was doing it, their senior year of this CP required class was actually more of a capstone seminar kind of class where they were, you know, they had that time in their schedule already to work on these projects, to, to work on resumes, to work on interview skills, to, they had that time built in. Um, some of our seniors take that opportunity to have, uh, you know, supervised studies, senior study, all of that. What in the uh, seniors in the CP program would be encouraged to have a an educator that would be there. So it's not a lot of requirement. And like Carrie mentioned, it's, it, every student can be part of the sustainability. Same with anybody can be in part of the IBCP. And when we think about it, like Dave mentioned, when we went in and talked to the kids, they all told us what their career track, their CTE track was. And that was the first thing they said, they, they computer science, sports medicine, 
And that's the only thing that the students would have to do in the IBCP. What's great about the IB is that we encourage kids to take two year, a two year IB class. And so that could be English 11 and 12, that could be a lot of different creative things. So Dr. Dimmick, I think it's really, there, there is a lot of flexibility on how they can be, they could enter into the IBCP program, just like the Sustainability Academy for Sustainable Thinking, where we're kind of taking all the great courses they already do and kind of put them under an umbrella, if that helps. And, and if I may, I, I would also offer that although our students are IB, we know not all of our students will obtain an IBDP diploma, and that's okay. Um, but the IBCP program or the career-related program offers an extension of IB into those upper grades where students could, can continue if they so choose to, um, and they're not going into an IBDP-related course, could still take an IBCP course in a career-related field and maintain that, that IB. And again, when we start talking about um, equity and access and expansion of, of IB, that allows us to obtain those goals. Thank you. Yeah, I'll just jump in and say, you know, I remember when I was elected to the school board uh, two years ago, Dr. Noonan had talked about us really trying to make, you know, a go, go for doing this, uh, the CP component of the IB. So it's just, for me, it's amazing to see just in two years, all the progress that you all have made, especially with COVID. And, you know, I know that in the past, we've sent students to Arlington for career and technical education. So it's wonderful to see this being brought in house. So I just really commend you all very much for that. We're gonna wrap this up in a few minutes, but if we have any other questions from anyone on the board. Okay. Oh, yes, Dr. Ortiz. Yeah, uh, so looking ahead, when the, looking ahead, <clears throat> when um, the, um, and, and this is maybe just me being ignorant at this point, but when the district um, um, submits the application for the Government School for Sustainability in the 2023-24 timeframe, what does that look like from the standpoint of, um, of any potential budgetary implications for the district? That's a, a really great question, Dr. Ortiz, and it's one that we've um, really are trying to get our, our hands around right now. Um, and, and just so everybody knows, the, the Governor's School moniker gives us an opportunity um, to also apply for additional grant funding that can offset any additional costs that may come to the school division. Uh, but the primary drivers of cost uh, for us are maintenance of effort um, like most of the time, um, like staff, uh, making sure that we have the appropriate materials and resources available that are of the best quality for us to be able to uh, maintain a program. So I'll give an example. Um, Thomas Jefferson High School for Science and Technology is a governor's school. Um, they have a foundation that is specific to Thomas Jefferson High School for Science and Technology that raises hundreds of thousands of dollars every year to put towards equipment and the like um, that can't necessarily be funded by the school division. Um, with, the, um, with the foundation that we have here, the Ed Foundation, and their desire to support this work, um, I, I do think that the costs associated with doing some sort of program like this with um, other school divisions coming in um, can be, uh, at least the cost of the materials and supplies and the like can be captured 
in partnership with the school division and our foundation. Um, and they, they've been really great and offered up um, some, some opportunities. Um, the other costs associated with it are transportation, but we, you know, we bear the brunt of, of the cost of transportation already to take kids to the Arlington Career Center. Um, and so knowing that we would be taking kids to their career center and bringing kids from Arlington back, um, we've been in early conversations with Arlington about how we may be able to split the cost of some of the transportation, um, same with the city of Falls Church, or city of Fairfax, excuse me, um, my former employer, <laughs> city of, of Fairfax. Um, so I do think um, with the exception of the materials, um, and, and Mr. George will tell you some of the materials that he needs are very expensive, um, but uh, we, we do believe that we have um, some ways of, of gaining some uh, ground on some of that. Thank you, Dr. Ortiz. Any other questions? I just want to say thank you to these outstanding educators again and just say thanks for hanging in there with us. It's 930 and eight o'clock calls early. So um, I just want to um, say yeah. thanks and I, I'll, I'll turn it over. Yes, to thank you again. And, and just um, it, it, I think I'm speaking for the board when I say it just does our heart good to see you all doing, you know, doing this work and really preparing our students to have successful careers after they graduate from Meridian High School. And this is really, I think Ms. Hardy's talking about, you know, having to close down some courses. And, you know, I know we, when I was in high school, I took typing. We don't offer that anymore. So, you know, th times change and we need to change with the times. And I think you all are making sure that our students can be competitive, whether they go on to college or whether they go into a career track. Um, and that's what it's all about. So thank you all very much for this work. And thank you for joining us and staying up. I'll get to bed now, so you're ready for the eight o'clock bell. Thanks so much. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Okay, we'll move on now to section 4.0T, budget questions and answers, and I'll turn it over to Dr. Noonan. Thank, thank you, you, Chair Downs. Um, I'm just gonna give just a brief update of kind of how this has gone in the past. And that does not mean at all that that's the way it has to go in the future. Um, but typically, um, we, we get questions from the board members, um, and in the packet, we, um, thanks to our team of Kristen Michael and uh, Michelle Kopic, they have now cataloged these questions. And our first set of questions, there are um, roughly you know, 20 questions or so that need, uh, to be, needed to be answered. So when we received them, um, we did churn through them. They have, they're very disparate in many ways in terms of what the questions are about. Um, and so what Kristen would like to do this evening, um, and I support, is kind of doing a cursory review of each of these answers, and that's the way we've done it in the past. And then after that's done, if you have additional questions that you'd like to come back to um, for each question, um, that, would, that would certainly make sense. Because some of these, we hope that these answers are comprehensive enough and get at the heart of what the, um, what the question was about. So. With that, uh, Madam Chair, if it's all right with you, I'd like to turn it over to um, Ms. Michael, our Chief Operating Officer, to work through some of these uh, budget questions. Of course, yes, please, Ms. Michael. Thank you so much for the opportunity to present the answers to the budget questions this evening. And thank you to Michelle Kopic, who is watching us online, um, who helped with all of these answers. So the first question that we had was about our unfunded budget requests. And this information is included in the budget document. Um, for any people that may be watching this presentation online. Um, in this question, we first provided a chart of all of the items that were requested and not funded. And then following um, the chart, we have a description of each. 
Um, so included in our unfunded list this year were additional office support at Mount Daniel and Oak Street. They were each asking for an additional half of an FTE, increasing their office staffing from 2.5 FTE to 3.0. We also had a request from both elementary schools to reclassify their principal secretary positions. I'm um, currently FCCPS, just like many jurisdictions, has different grades of clerical support. I'm um, just like we have different grades of other support. And their request was to classify them at the same level as a high school um, principal secretary. The next item we had was an English for Speakers of Other Languages teacher. Um, a request for an additional 0.5 um, was not funded. We had an instructional coach position at the high school was not funded. Um, the next two we partially funded in our budget. So the first was professional development. We had requests for $1,500 from transportation and $60,000 from curriculum instruction um, and achievement from that team. So instead of funding those two items, after we received additional budget feedback that we'll talk about in another budget question, we actually increased that funding level to $100,000. Um, so we did leave these two on this unfunded list, even though they are funded in another item. Um, the next item is a school psychologist. We had a request for two. So in the superintendent's proposed budget, one is funded and one remains on the unfunded list. Um, we had a special education administrator contract extension. Um, this would have extended the contract lengths of our elementary um, special education administrators um, to a 12-month position, um, which is similar to the positions at the high school. Typically, elementary administrators are not 12-month positions with the exception of the principal. Um, and then we had a central office position request for a student services coordinator. Um, so those were all of the unfunded positions. The second question that we had um, was regarding a teacher pay comparison. So every single year, the Washington Area Boards of Education Guide, WABY is the acronym that you'll hear talked about a lot, um, produces a, a guide where all of the jurisdictions get together and submit data. Um, currently, Fairfax is the jurisdiction that compiles all that data and they produce this guide that comes out each year. So these charts are comparing teacher salaries for this current school year, that's the data we have available, FY22, looking at standard 10 month teaching contracts. So if we look at starting teacher salaries, people with a bachelor's degree, we are second in the region behind Loudoun. If we look at the middle of the master's degree teacher scale, we are second following Arlington. And then if we look at that PhD level, um, the very top of the salary scale. So the PhD scale with the most years of experience, we are third um, behind Manassas City and Arlington. Um, so that's a comparison of teacher pay. The next question um, had to do with contract lengths. And again, this is a chart that is coming from that Washington Area Boards of Education or WABY guide. When you look at this chart comparing teacher contract lengths, and I apologize because it's, it's very small on the screen, what you're gonna see for each school division is for teachers, they have a number of scheduled days and unscheduled days. And what that means is scheduled days are when teachers are required to come to work. Unscheduled days are days that teachers may have in their contracts where they get credit for things that are done outside of their contract time. So when we look at the scheduled days, almost everyone is very consistent. Um, Alexandria is 195. Um, most of us are at 194. Manassas is at 193. And I actually think Montgomery County answered this question wrong, right? Because if, if they had, and I think they may have included the unscheduled days in that total because that number looks, um, very different than before, and we can follow up with Wavy to ask. 
Um, but they provide this great comparison that we use for lots of data regarding 10-month contracts. When we looked at 11-month contracts, which was the other part of this question, it's very difficult to compare 11-month contracts because when you look at everyone's website, not everyone is consistent in whether they're showing the scheduled days, the unscheduled days, or both. Um, so we provided some different examples here from um, Falls Church City, Fairfax County, in terms of their contract dates. And we were unable to find other jurisdictions where we could get um, additional information on 11-month contracts. Question number four was related to collective bargaining. And it was how much are neighbor, neighboring Virginia school divisions budgeting for collective bargaining? So what we did in this question is we reached out to each of our colleagues in the other jurisdictions. So I would like to thank very much for helping us with answering this question. And we've included the information that they provided us. So um, in a very high level summary, Alexandria has not yet set aside any specific funding. Um, Arlington had said they have not finalized their budget. They released their proposed budget later in February. Fairfax told us that they had put funding in their budget in both last year or this current school year, FY22, and in their proposed budget for FY23. So when you look at those together, they're budgeting um, 0.7 million or $700,000 and four positions. Um, and they asked us to remember that their FY23 budget doesn't get adopted by their board until May. Um, we have our funding in here as well. We have 300,000 in one-time funding included in the proposed budget. And then Loudon provided us with this chart. They're actually budgeting 3.3 million and 14 positions for collective bargaining. And they were kind enough, kind enough to give us all of the positions that they had included. And we didn't get a response from Manassas Park City. And then Prince William had said that they are considering setting aside $3 million for both legal fees and HR payroll staffing. The next question had to do with the budget decision process. What process did we use to decide what was funded or unfunded at our budget requests? And what was the clear breakpoint in the cost benefit analysis? So in the fall, schools and department leaderships were asked to provide their budget requests for 23, a process that we use every single fall and when asking people for those requests. And we reminded them this year, as in prior years, they needed to tie those requests to our current placemat. Um, and that really helps ensure that the requests are in alignment with our system-wide goals. So what direct department directors and school principals did is they went and they received feedback from their staff, their teachers and other staff members on what the priorities and what the needs were for the coming years. And from that, they developed their budget requests that were sent in. The budget requests were all either funded in this budget or on the unfunded list that I went over in the first budget question. So then all of those budget requests were combined together um, by Michelle Kopic, thank you, Michelle, um, who created a master list of all of those items. And then once we had them all together, we looked at what was the relevance to the placemat? Was this a prior and ongoing commitment or something that was new? What was the impact to our um, investments that we're making to students and staff? Um, our ability to address needs that were at each level, um, other opportunities or other ways that we could address whatever the need was in the request, and then also the urgency of the need. So when those requests um, were all reviewed, the superintendent then went back and sought additional feedback, both from principals and the leadership team on the prioritization of that list, really going through, do we have the right things funded um, with the limited resources that we had for this year? Then after the budget was developed, the superintendent has been meeting with staff at each location to go over the budget. He's also been meeting with our employee groups, PEAK, which is our professional employee association, SEEK, our support employee association, and then did a community budget presentation to gather more feedback.
question six um, was the position that we just talked about earlier this evening in this presentation, the new sustainability program coordinator high school teacher. Um, that position is a school level teacher leadership position um, as they all discussed tonight. Um, and I believe everything in this budget question um, was in the slides earlier this evening in terms of providing relief for full-time teachers, facilitating curriculum research, supporting classroom teachers, being that liaison to administration and CIA and helping that um, connection between Arlington and Fairfax City. Question number seven was how much time will the math intervention um, positions we have funded in the budget be spent delivering services to students? Um, so we reached out to the principals and um, thanked them for this information. The elementary interventionist positions um, were both partial positions and they're being increased to full time and 100% of their time is dedicated to working with students. They don't work with teachers. The high school math intervention position is gonna teach all of the math eight intervention block eight. They're also going to support teachers and um, help with tier one instruction during all of the other blocks. Question number nine was about parent liaison. Um, will it be a requirement that our parent liaison position be bilingual in Spanish and English? And that is a yes. Question number nine was how um, many staff members does a playground supervision funding provide at each school and what was the hourly compensation? So what we attempted to do in this answer is break down exactly how that budget estimate was developed. So if we look, that total budget cost was $38,055.60 for both schools. We then said, okay, what was the allocation to each school, basically dividing it in half. So for each school it was $19,027.80. Then we had assumed that each school would need to hire two positions to cover the launch period. So 19 divided by the two positions allows us to have $9,513.90 per position. We then looked at how many school days would that position be needed? And there's 180 student days. And then we looked at how much time to cover the lunch block. And we assumed it would have to be two and a half hours per day. We need to allow time for that staff person to come in, clock in, get to the cafeteria, be ready. And then after the students left, we knew it would take them a few minutes to wrap up, clock out. So hence the two and a half hours per day. So when we looked, looked at that, that brought the funding per hour available to $21.14. These positions are um, hourly positions. So we also have to account for FICA, um, which is a tax we have to pay. So that's $1.50. So that gave us $19.64 that could be used as a possible hourly rate. When we look at how we fund this, the schools may decide that they want to just hire two people. They could also decide that they want to hire more. Maybe they have someone who wants to work Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and someone else who wants to work Tuesday, Thursday, for example. Or maybe even they have somebody who wants to do a portion of it. They have that flexibility. They also have the ability to hire other staff people who work for the system who may be available during that block. So for example, they could elect to hire an employee from daycare who could work to cover this lunch period. So when we look at that, um, we will see a flexibility in that rate. So that $19.64 was our estimation of a blended rate between staff that are already here and potential new people we would hire. Question 10, um, this was, can we provide a salary comparison for the psychologists and school nurse roles? So when we look at our school nurse position, we contract with the Fairfax County um, government's Department of Health to provide us with nursing services. And what they do is they bill us a contract rate that looks at that employee's salary cost and the benefit costs of their jurisdiction, um, which tend to be higher than VRS. So they give us a billed monthly rate for that position 
for 12 months. So when we look at that budget estimate, it's assuming the contract rate that we will pay them over a 12 month period. The estimate for the school psychologist, our school psychologists um, are 10 month positions. So they work a shorter contract length. And we've included a link um, to the job description posted on our website so you can see the job description and how we came up with that budget estimate as we looked at the average of all of our current psychologists, averaged their salaries, and then added the benefit costs. So that's how we got to the $126,742. School psychologists are paid on the teacher scale, so their compensation is based on their educational attainment. So someone, for example, with a master's with 30 additional credits is paid on a higher salary lane than someone with a master's degree. Um, and then we included the salary scale following. The next question had to do with paraprofessionals, the salary range and the qualifications. So this first chart shows the salary ranges for paraprofessionals. This is a good example of our salary scales that are on the website. Um, as you can see, going down are the steps on the left. And then in this case, the grades are going um, in the columns going across to the right. And then underneath the salary scale, we have a description of all of the different positions that go with those salaries. When you look at our salary scales, whenever you see an annual salary amount, that means that position is exempt and they're paid an annual salary. Anyone who's eligible for overtime for the Federal um, Fair Labor Standards Act, their wage will be shown in an hourly wage. Um, so as you can see on this chart, our special education paraprofessionals are this I2S scale, and then um, regular paraprofessionals are I2, the scale here. When we look at the um, education requirements for a paraprofessional, um, they need to have any combination of education experience that's equivalent to a high school diploma and some experience working with students. And then we also linked their job descriptions here as well. Question 12 was professional development. Um, we put in $100,000 for professional development. Is that enough of an increase? And can we provide some comparative analysis from surrounding jurisdictions? So when we look at FCCPS's system-wide budget for professional development, it's um, in FY23, it's proposed to be 190,000. That's an increase of um, 89,000. It was an increase of 89,000 in FY22. So when we look at the COVID pandemic and we look at what our actual expenditures were per, for, for professional development, in FY19, we spent 87,000 approximately. Then in FY20, when the pandemic struck near the end of the year, which is often when we do lots of professional development, our expenditures fell to $51,628, and they fell even further um, in the, the year following, so down to $31,362. Um, here, what we did is we consolidated our professional development budget into one account, and um, that happened multiple years ago. I mean, the goal was then the chief academic officer would manage that funding to support both instruction and support employees. Um, at the time, that thinking was that was the best way to strategically use those resources to ensure we were meeting the highest need for our school division. In addition to that funding, we do have additional funding for professional development in Title II. That funding is federal funding used to improve instruction. Um, so we've also included the expenditures there for Title II. Um, when we look at the pandemic, um, in addition to not spending as much on professional development, um, operations staff also haven't really been accessing funding for professional development. So when we look at the increase in the proposed budget, that going from that original 60,000 that was requested by the CIA team and the 1,500 requested by transportation, based on the feedback from all of the operations directors, 
that's how we increase that funding request um, up to 100,000 to truly, really try to meet both the instructional needs that we know are pent up from underspending during the pandemic, as well as to support our support employees. So when we tried to compare professional development budget with surrounding jurisdictions, one of the things that we found is surrounding jurisdictions are budgeting for professional development very differently. Most other school systems have professional development budgeted all over the place. So they allocate funding to schools for professional development, as well as all of their departments. And then our larger school divisions around us like Arlington and Fairfax, each have departments that solely do professional development. So when we look at that, it gets very difficult to compare exactly how much everyone is spending. We really tried to think about if there was there a way we could get a per pupil cost and we couldn't because even when we looked at their line item budgets, most jurisdictions don't have a line item for professional development. They've blended it in a combination of contracted services, travel, and other components. Um, so we did include in here some additional information in terms of the other school divisions, their offices of professional learning or professional development, just to try to give some other components um, about some of the things that they do in addition to funding professional development. Question 13 was prior budget reductions. Um, so prior budget reductions, what we did is we went back and we looked from 2018 through 2023, and we couldn't find any budget reductions that we took that impacted um, additional pay for teachers. So EPEDs are extra pay for extra duties, right? So those are like stipends or supplements that teachers get for doing something outside of their regular teaching. And NBCT is National Board Certified Teacher Certification. So when we looked back, we didn't see any reductions to any of those between 2018 to 2023. But we went further back to try to look at when potentially could we have made reductions in those areas. So National Board um, Certified Teachers, we looked back and in 2017, the stipend that we were providing to teachers who had an NBCT certification from FCCPS was reduced from 2000 to $1,000. So those teachers each year get a stipend from the state. They get an initial stipend when they first get it. And then they get a state stipend each year and FCCPS was adding additional funding to it. So we did make that reduction at FY17. When we look back prior to FY19, when I got here, the stipend that was paid by FCCPS for our own portion, we gave to the employee in full, but the state used to pay employees the state portion directly. And the state changed their funding policy. And instead of paying the employee directly, they set the funding to the jurisdictions and then the jurisdictions had to pay the employees that pass through state money, right? And at that time, FCCPS decided to take the cost of the FICA for that state portion out of the reimbursement that they were paying to employees. So prior to FY19, the state portion was reduced by that FICA charge. But starting in FY19, we stopped and we just said, we will absorb the cost of the FICA and pay the employees that full stipend coming from the state which increased that um, benefit to teachers. Then in FY21, we also started paying for the recertification costs for teachers when they renew their NBCT and they have to do that every five years. And then we also started um, giving more support to teachers who wanted to become NBCT certified. So we offer a cohort that provides mentoring um, and assistance to our employees at no cost. And then we each year pay the component fees for 
up to four teachers that are applying to MBCT and that's a benefit to them of $1,900. So we pay those fees. Question 14, school psychologists. Um, can we clarify the total psychologists proposed in this budget and our previous recommendations along with our funding source and status? So the FY23 proposed budget does include one additional school psychologist position. Um, we previously had made requests to the general government regarding pandemic funding. And um, they had provided funding for a school counselor for FY21-22, that this school year, um, and then as well as next school year, 22-23. So that funding has already been received. But in addition to that, we had asked the general government for funding for two clinical psychologists to extend the time for that counselor position already funded for two additional years to help us with providing um, support for the employee bonus or for employee increment that we gave employees this current year. And then also to help us with that match that was required for the ventilation replacement at Mary Ellen Henderson. So when we look at all of those requests to the general government, they have provided us with the funding to support the employee increment and for the funding to match the requirement for ventilation. Um, so they have not um, yet provided any funding to extend the counselor or add psychologist positions. All right, question 15 was mass support. Um, was the math science teacher at Mary, Mary Ellen Henderson enough to provide the needed support? Um, and thank you to the high, um, middle school staff who helped us answer this question. Um, yes, that additional math science teacher that we're going to add will eliminate the requirement for teachers to teach six periods at middle school. It's important both to the teachers that are teaching that period, but this will also free those teachers up to provide intervention services to our most vulnerable learners um, in that additional period. Um, so yes, this will meet that need and allow them to return to providing intervention during that sixth period. Question 16, parent liaison. What are the functions of a parent liaison and what do we anticipate gaining from an additional half a position? Um, in the first paragraph, we'll really talk about those general responsibilities of a parent liaison. They include being a bilingual bicultural liaison, working closely with families and the school division, interpreting and translating informal communications, building relationships with and amongst families, promoting an understanding of families' cultural diversity, and providing information about connecting families with community, social health, and other resources. So then we went on to identify some of their um, additional duties in more detail. So when we look at our parent liaison, we currently have one parent liaison position who's serving families at all five schools, and that position is staffing the Family Resource Center at Oak Street. Um, and that position is really currently overwhelmed with that level of work. So that additional half-time position at the secondary campus, um, we really think will allow our full-time position to focus on the preschool, the two elementary schools, and the Family Resource Center. Um, and we really believe that this additional family will really help provide that bilingual support and really help bridge a better understanding with how to navigate school and supporting students as they work through the middle and high school. Um, so we really do think this is critical to secondary functioning. Question 17 was professional development. Um, this was the departments had requested $61,500 and we had put a budget increase in for $100,000. Um, why do we go over above that amount? Which I, I probably covered in a previous question, sorry. Um, but as we were looking at our budget requests and going back and getting additional feedback from division leadership, the operations directors really talked about 
um, not having the support that they needed in terms of addressing both operational and instructional professional development. And with limited funding um, and a focus on instruction, they really felt like asking for a larger dollar amount would really help support professional development, not only for teachers, but also for support staff. Um, so that's why that um, was increased higher than originally asked. Question 18, ESOL teachers. Um, and this talks about in the COVID pandemic, why did the requested in ESOL teacher at Maryland Henderson remain on the unfunded list? So when we look at enrollment of students with English for speakers of other languages, um, we base our staffing based on the number of students that are receiving services. So the chart in this question in includes both students receiving services, those that are exiting services, um, which means they're being monitored after they've um, become proficient in English and then families who refuse services. So when we look at this chart, um, we really had a high, the highest number of students receiving services in 2018, 2019, then it decreased in 1920, decreased again in 2021, and it has remained level. Um, so when we looked at um, funding an ESOL teacher, we really looked at, we've um, almost consistently maintained that level of staffing from when our students receiving services was much higher. Um, so that's why other um, priorities were funded instead. Question 19 was paraprofessionals. Um, the question was, we don't see any budget requests for an increase in paraprofessionals. Um, and would that um, be a tool to relieve pressure on teachers? So when we looked at our budget requests that came in, we didn't see any requests for increased paraprofessionals either from um, schools or department directors. Um, and then we also included a chart in this document that we thought might be helpful with data coming from WAVY. And what we did is we looked at how many paraprofessionals um, each jurisdiction had and how many students they had, and then looked at how many students per IA. I mean, you can see that we have the second um, highest, second lowest number of students for each IA position, or the second highest level of paraprofessional staffing. And then that was the last question. That was impressive, Ms. Michael. <laughs> Uh, I'll open it up to, and thank you very much, and to Ms. Kopic as well. Uh, any questions from the board? Yes, Ms. Silverman? We can still submit more written questions, right? Okay, yes. I'm going to reserve. Yeah, thanks. Um, just as a reminder, we do have two more budget work sessions, um, one uh, the next work session meeting and one after that. Um, and we just, again, if you can get them to us uh, before the meeting um, in advance, we certainly will put the questions together. So, yep. Thank you. Mr. Reidinger. Thank you, Chair. I have three questions. Um, the first is on the collective bargaining 300,000. Just to confirm my understanding that that's in essence a reserve, a budget reserve. It's not been allocated anything in case it needs to be spent. So there's no FTE or mandatory expenditures that's so that the funds are available should we need to spend them because of the approach to collective bargaining. Is that correct? Correct. You're absolutely correct. Thank you. The, the second question was on the national uh, board te teacher certifications and the uh, extra pay for that. I, I noted that you said, Ms. Michael, that we around 2017 cut it from 2000 to 1000. And I, I remember that discussion. I remember when it happened. And I remember that it was essentially because we were under so much budget pressure, we were looking for, you know, spare change in the couch uh, because of the soaring enrollment. 
Um, I gather that we you know, have done other things in terms of providing additional support to people who, to teachers who are seeking the national board certification. My question is though, that has, has the school system, has the administration looked at whether or not we should restore that stipend to 2000 from 1000 and whether that would be an effective means to help maintain some of our most experienced and highest qualified teachers. And, and, and I say, I, I don't know what surrounding jurisdictions pay. I don't really have any, any notion about that. It just seems to me that the certified teachers probably are highly valuable and the pay was cut for a reason where the, you know, the driver has now um, at least been reduced in terms of expansion. And it does seem to me like something we would want to look at to determine whether or not uh, equitable and competitive reasons would cause us to uh, increase back to $2,000 per teacher. So when we looked at National Board Certified Teaching, um, all, all of these were cut before we were here. So we went back and did that research. There are other jurisdictions um, like Fairfax that wasn't paying any type of supplementary thing beyond the state. And then Arlington, in lieu of paying some type of additional funding each year, provides an employee with a step. So I had went back and I had calculated like what would be better for employees in the long term. And it really matters on where you are in the salary scale the time you would get that additional step because all the steps aren't equal. Um, but beyond doing those calculations, we really hadn't um, continued on with the discussion in terms of restoring this amount back to 2000 for our current employees. So, uh, you know, I'm not hard over whether we ought to or not, but it's something I would like the administration to look at because if, if we think that that's a good, you know, a good way and it, we want to encourage more of our teachers to get board certified, I'd certainly support finding the money or reallocating it from somewhere else so that we could pay the higher stipend. Um, thank you. The, the last question is um, on the other matter I asked about, which is professional development. Um, thank you very much. You had two questions on it. It was a very exhaustive response. Um, and I, I, it was really helpful. Despite the fact that we've underspent, you know, I, I think professional development is super important. And so I'm certainly supportive of increasing the, the budget to what we think we can spend, which gets to my question, which is the what we think we can spend. Um, because it was clear from your answers that we've had trouble executing on the amount that we already had. And uh, I don't know that we've addressed the, you know, the why of that and what we can do to help drive execution. And so I think it's worth thinking through whether any of that money ought to be reallocated or if there are additional steps we should take to, you know, if we can spend $190,000 on professional development for our teachers and staff, I'm fully supportive of that. Um, I just want to make sure that we do the things we need to do so we can spend that and continue to train them. So whether that's a half an FTE to help Mr. Bates with sort of managing the program and driving it some sort of, you know, a, a more administrative person to sort of do that, or, you know, whether it's we build in into teacher evaluations, did you take a professional development course? Um, and, you know, just sort of use that as an evaluation factor. I don't know what it is. I just, I don't. I would be disappointed if we got to the end of the budget execution for next year and you know we still spent fifty thousand dollars 
on professional development, we have $190,000 in the budget. I would, I would be seriously disappointed. In yeah, I, th I think we're, we would all be um, bummed about that. Um, one of the things that we've um, kicked around a little bit too, just in terms of professional development, and, and I think I'm not telling anybody on the board anything you don't already know, but the best professional development is embedded professional development. So anytime we can work with teachers in, in working with other teachers that are same grade level or same content, the better. And so one of the things that I, I know our teachers are um, greatly um, disappointed with just generally because of the work of the pandemic, I think more than anything is that they haven't had enough time to plan with each other. And that planning is professional development. And so one of the things that we've talked about next year is trying to find a way to give the kindergarten team a couple of days, of, uh, you know, in the year to be planning outside of the school, outside of school, which would mean that there'd be substitute pay, um, making sure that the math team has an opportunity on and on. So I think we're going to look at multiple models of professional development to include those that are a little bit more embedded going forward. And that all makes perfect sense to me, Dr. Noon. So I just, I'd urge as much flexibility as possible to make sure that we can, you know, I, I wouldn't object to spending $190,000 on sort of the in-service and planning days if that's the reasonable thing. Just I want to make sure we execute on getting the professional development. Done. Understood. Thank you, Mr. Reinger. Ms. Tice. I just had a quick follow-up on that same point. I wanted to first just... Um, echo the same sentiments with Mr. Reitinger that I think it's really valuable and important. And I absolutely love the former teacher, the former teacher in me loves and supports Dr. Newton's um, comments about uh, teachers working together and that being and that being the best professional development. And, and gosh, what a gift to give teachers a day to work with their team, um, with their classes taken care of. Although we all know that also is work putting the sub plans together, but work that would be worth it. Um, my question is really um, when you were looking at the cost of professional development, and obviously we know a lot of that cost went down because people weren't leaving their homes during COVID to go do go to conferences or or whatever trainings. Uh, did we look at all at at how the cost of professional development might be different post pandemic and people just opting out of of travel and doing things more virtually? Like, will that reduce the cost of some of the professional development opportunities out there? So I think overall, when we look at professional development that's done virtually, generally the cost of that training has remained the same as if someone went there. We're not seeing reductions there, but we do see savings in terms of the travel costs, right? I know on the operation side, we've talked a lot about looking at having time for our staff. So, you know, we look at bus drivers, for example, their contract length is the same number of days as students. So bringing them in for additional time and really bringing in trainers where we can train more people at once. So I think the pandemic, one of the things that has really taught us or we've learned is how to be more flexible in terms of thinking about professional development and how to accomplish it. Um, but we haven't done a ton of analysis looking to see if upcoming conference prices have changed just compared to prior. Thank you. I, and I'll just pick up, I, uh, there are a couple of things that we're seeing trending in professional development right now too. And that is that we're, see, we're seeing both camps sort of simultaneously working together. Uh, or working in parallel. Some some folks are staying with the more online and finding that is a much more flexible way. Uh, so for example, we're sending a ton of people to IB training, but it's gonna be done virtually um, so that we'll save all those things. And then there are other groups that are really excited about the bounce back and are not offering anything online and saying, if you want this, you've gotta to come to us for it. So it'll be interesting to see how all of that shakes out um, post pandemic. Thank you, Ms. Tice. 
Any other questions? Okay, well, I have a few quick ones, Ms. Michael. Um, the so first of all, for our um, everyone watching, when we have the salaries, that that those numbers include benefits. Is that correct? So whenever we cost a position in terms of putting it in the budget, yes, we always include the salary cost, and then we include the full cost of employee benefits. So for a new position, that would be retirement, health, life, FICA, all of those components. Great, thank you. That was more just to uh, for people watching so they understood what those numbers um, represented. Uh, in terms of question one with the unfunded budget requests, I know that the English, um, the ESOL position, the 0.5, I know that's, that is a carryover from years past or any of the other um, items listed there carryovers from previous years. I don't think so either, but I have a list, so I will double check. Okay, thank you. And, um, oh, one question I had, the student services coordinator, is that the position that would be at Meridian supporting like athletics and extracurriculars or is that something different? No, this was an additional position um, that would be focused on student services and support. So under um, special education and student oh, services, okay. not at Meridian. Gotcha, okay, thank you. And um, I guess my last question is with the, um, when we were talking about the psychologists and the counselors, the funds to extend the counselor and the clinical psychologists, um, do would it help for um, the school board members to reach out to city council, or is that something that um, they're aware of that we're, we would really, I mean, as we all know, after COVID, the more help we can get in terms of social emotional support for our students. And I didn't know if that was something that we can give a call to some folks on city council and just let them know that we really need these these i think it would be incredibly helpful um if you all reached out to them and let them know that we're very appreciative of the funding that they've given to us for the two other things including right. the employee increment and um, the rooftop units but we do have some operational positions that are one-time funded right you know we understand that and and those positions and i think that's one of the biggest areas of pushback is that there is some concern about funding through ARPA um, positions because they they see them as short term um, and and not ongoing. Um, that being said, we've made it very clear that we would be um, transparent in any application process. Mm -hmm. If someone was coming in, that we would tell them it's a two year only mm -hmm. project, um, and uh, there still seems to be some resistance. So it would be really helpful, I think, if uh, we could get some support there. Okay, and even though and. The point of this is that we're we're sort of trying to recover from what students have been through over COVID. So the the whole hopefully the goal would be a couple of years out that we we would be in a good spot for yeah and we wouldn't need those positions. So and okay. I, I believe they were focusing on the current year stuff first. So it is a great time to reach out. Okay, thank you. Any other questions? Okay, great. Well, we are uh, moving along then in our agenda and we're in section 4.03 now, the monthly budget report. Ms. or Dr. Noonan, or straight to Ms. Michael. So thank you one more time. Um, this is the monthly budget monitoring report. So for our new school board members, um, what we do is each month we provide a report to the board that looks at what is our budget for the current year what have we received to date in terms of revenue or spent in terms of expenditures, right? What do we have that's an encumbrance and what's remaining? And then as soon as we get past 
now. Um, after we get the proposed budget out, we'll start providing estimates for where we're going to be at the end of the year, um, starting next month. Um, so I'll go over this um, quickly, but not too long. No, just a quick uh, clarification too, and and we'll we'll take your feedback on this. Uh, and, and would appreciate it. One of the things that Ms. Michael and I did talk about was rather than doing it every month, putting it in as a, um, a, an item under materials for the board each month, but doing it on a quarterly basis instead of a monthly basis. Okay, I'm seeing some thumbs up and some head nods. So I think we'll plan on that going forward, but this will be your, your first treatment of the budget report, monitoring report. So on the first page, we have a summary chart and, and how this summary chart is broken out is on the top part of the chart is revenue, um, they're type R. And then we have category that's by major group. We show what is a revised budget, what is the amount that we've received to date, that's the sum year to date. Um, and then we have on revenue, thus remaining budget available, that's the revenue that we have not yet received that we budgeted for and the percent available. On the expenditure side, they're also grouped by major categories. We have the revised budget, what we've expended to date, and then we have encumbrances. Encumbrances are purchase orders where we've placed a purchase order for a good or a service that not, is not yet received, right? So that could be something that we ordered that's not yet delivered, or we could have put in an encumbrance for, for example, for the toilet paper that we know we need to purchase for the rest of the year. So it's encumbered because we know we need to place that order. So I'm just going to talk through this chart at a high level. And again, thank you to Michelle Kopic who put this report together. Um, when we look at overall um, on this report, we have the summary chart on the first page. Let me just point that out. And then for the new board members, what we have on the second page is a data table that compares this current year with the two prior years, um, both in terms of the dollar values and percents available. And then for people that are more visual as compared to um, looking at numerical charts, this is a, a graph that shows that same data um, over the multiple years. So that's in there as a reference. So when we look at where we're at currently, um, we are trending very similarly with prior years with the exception of expenditures that are trending right now higher than before. And I'll go through that when we get to the expenditure section. When we look at revenue, other revenue um, is fees that we receive. Um, we've received to date $263,457. The majority of that um, 209,000 is coming from tuition that we charge either to preschool families that have a child at JTP, a community peer, or to families who live outside of the city of Falls Church who enroll their child in Falls Church City Public Schools. So that's the majority of that revenue received to date. The other section of revenue in there is revenue from stop arm cameras. Those are when people go past a stop arm bus um, that's out on a bus. We had budgeted 55,000 for that for the school year. And to date, we've collected $43,700. Again, not good news. Um, we have message and morning announcements not to drive around buses and we'll do that again. Um, so that's our other revenue. The use of fund balance is our one-time money um, that we budget each year. So we budgeted 450,000. Um, if we need to use that money, that um, we'll post near the end of the fiscal year. The next category is state. We get two types of funding through the state. The first is state aid. Um, state aid is currently tracking as we would have expected through the end of December. The state is providing us with that money right now based on the projected enrollment that we have for this year. And this year our enrollment was 89 students lower than what we had in that projection. And this year's budget from the state included a hold harmless in terms of that enrollment. But we need to remember that if our sales tax comes in higher than we budgeted or higher than the state budgeted, 
that they will reduce that hold harmless funding. Um, so we will see then a reduction in state aid that will be offset by higher sales tax. So we just need to be mindful of that as we move through this fiscal year. The super bright picture and overall is, is of course our sales tax revenue. We received sales tax from sales two months prior. So when we look at December sales tax that's posted, that's from October sales. So there's always a two month lag. When we look at sales tax in October um, and, and year to date, we're actually 24.7% higher than budgeted. And we use the state's forecast in terms of sales tax. So we're doing much better um, as a state than what the state projected. School divisions receive sales tax based on statewide sales, not just local sales. So that is a difference between our budget and the general government budget, which is based on the point of sale transaction. Um, so we are um, currently 12% trending higher than last year. So we'll need to continue to monitor sales tax, um, but that is a bright picture. Um, federal revenue is mostly reimbursable grants. Um, so far we've received uh, just about $29,000 and federal funding, and that's from career and technical education and titles two and four. The majority of our federal funding is for special education, um, and we use that to fund teachers for special ed, and all of that will be fully expended, expended by the end of the year, and our first reimbursement um, is in now, so we should see that in next month's report. And then the last revenue category, interfund transfers um, and general government transfers, both of those things happen in the last month of the fiscal year. So the general government transfers the local funding that we receive, interfund transfers are transfers between funds. Um, so when we look at, in this case, um, this is funding that the daycare fund is providing um, based on their additional um, impacts to custodial and other operations. So on the expenditure side, our salaries are expanding at a slightly faster rate um, than last year, which is good, that's what we wanted. And they're also expanding faster than FY20. Um, we have six months of salaries in for our 12-month employees, and we pay our teachers um, over 12 months, even though they're 10-month employees. So their pay that they're going to get in July and August will be posted back to this fiscal year. Um, so right now we only have four months of teacher pay in. And when we look at our salaries right now, we have 60.8% available. That's compared to 63% available um, last year, which is good, trending in the right direction. And we had 62% available in FY20. When we look at why our salaries are trending higher, um, it's the employee bonus that we provided our employees in mid-December. And um, when we take that out of our calculation, we are um, having 62.3% available, right? So that's just a little bit higher than two years ago, but still lower than last year, um, which is all good in terms of what we're expecting for the end of the year. Um, benefits right now are expanding at a slightly higher rate than last year. We had 58.8% available compared to 59.3. Um, again, just as a reference point, we pay our employee benefits um, over 12 months for all of our employees with the exception of the Virginia retirement system. They require that we make those payments over people's contract length. So you'll see that expending at a different rate because we pay teachers over 10 months to VRS instead of 12. And then when we look at all of the other items on here, contracted services, the utilities, all of those different components, and when we add them all together, we call that logistics. Right, those accounts currently are trending higher than last year, which is exactly what we would be expecting with all of our return to in-person learning, the additional expenditures we've had for COVID mitigation. And then the biggest thing in this component, and you'll see it in our increased encumbrances, are the two electric buses um, that we were awarded through the DEQ, which is the Department of Environmental Quality. So for those buses, we had to issue a purchase order for both of the buses 
um, in order to get that order placed. We're looking forward to that delivery in May. Once um, those buses are delivered, DEQ will pay us back for half of that. So, so that funding will be added back. We'll get that reimbursement credit. Um, so that is why you see those accounts expending at a faster rate and why our encumbrances are higher than last year. Um, and last year at this point, instead of the 3.5 in encumbrances that we have here, we had 1.6 million. So then after this chart, um, we have the two three-year comparisons. And then the other component here in this report for your review after all the text is we do provide on a line-by-line -line basis, first revenue and expenditures, what the budget is, the actual receive to date, and then um, in the revenue, that's the revenue budgeted, not yet received, is shown as some of the available budget, and then what that percentage is, and all of the revenue and expenditure categories are provided. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Michael. Any questions? Yes, Dr. Ortiz. Just looking forward on those <clears throat> electric buses, does that procurement also include all the charging infrastructure and um, that they'll be needed to support those? So Dominion um, Virginia Power is going to pay for that charging infrastructure. So originally when we first applied, we thought we would have to pay for the charging infrastructure, um, but through Dominion Virginia Power, they will put in that infrastructure. And then when our buses are not in use, that is another um, what they call vehicle um, battery to grid that they'll be able to draw power from. So when they install that power, which we're working on that now, they're going to install power um, for even more buses. So not just the two, it's a bank of six or eight. And, and, and that contract with Dominion will allow them to um, discharge from those buses at certain times? That is correct. Thank you, Dr. Ritchie. Any other questions? Well, that actually segues nicely into our next agenda item. Um, Dr. Nuno, it would be okay if I asked Ms. Michael to give us a brief, brief context for the public who's listening before we talk about the resolution? Absolutely. Thank you so much. So thank you for the school board support. We had applied with the original first round of funding through the Virginia DEQ, the Department of um, Environmental Quality to receive electric buses and we were awarded two. And that funding is coming um, partially from the Volkswagen settlement. So their next availability for a round of funding, the applications are due February 1st. And in this batch of funding, they're doing something differently than they did before which is they asked school divisions before they applied for the funding to get buses to have the school board sign a resolution authorizing a specific person to be able to submit that application and provide information to them, monitoring information about the buses long-term. So before you tonight, we have um, a request for that resolution. We would really like to apply for two additional buses. Um, our first two buses that we applied for and were awarded, we purchased from um, Sunny Merriman and their Thomas buses. Um, and this next batch that we would like to apply for February 1st, we're actually going to apply for Kingmore, um, which will then give us buses from two different vendors to help us diversify where we're getting buses repaired. Because at least originally when the buses are under warranty, they will have to go back to where we purchased them in terms of getting maintained. Um, so we, we think that'll be to our benefit and we're really um, hopeful that we could be awarded additional funding um, and again, continue to increase our electric bus fleet. So thank you. Thank you, Ms. Michael. Any questions before I read the resolution? Yes, I, I would just like to add also, um, there's been a lot of questions about our year-end balance and one of the places that we would look to um, 
purchase some of these buses or the portion of that wouldn't be paid for through some grants would be through our year-end balance. So it's really important that we maintain that year-end balance so that if a need like this does arise that we can um, adequately fund it. Thank you. Yes, Dr. Ortiz. Yeah, so with the existing buses that we have, I know that there's um, um, somewhat of a, of a limited um, headroom on, 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 our, on, our, on our bus fleet. Um, are some of the buses that we have um, nearing their end of life so that it makes sense this replacement is timely? So yes, when we look at the first two buses that we asked for, we would be replacing buses that were 16 and 17 years old. This grant program does require you to surrender the diesel buses. So you can't maintain the old diesel buses and get the brand new electric. So the next two that we would be replacing are currently um, 13 and 14 years old, right? Which is perfect timing. We really should be replacing buses each 12 years. So these are really all beyond their um, expected life. Okay, I know that you all have the resolution of you, but I'm gonna read it. It's not too lengthy and then uh, I'll seek a motion. Uh, Falls Church City School Board Resolution 01-22, Virginia Department of Environmental Quality DEQ Clean School Bus Program. It was approved by the Falls Church City School Board that the following resolution for DEQ Clean School Bus Program resolution be adopted. Resolution authorizing Falls Church City Public Schools to make application for and to sign certain assurances with respect to the application for the Clean School Bus Program, partially funded with Volkswagen Environmental Mitigation Trust for state beneficiaries, state trust. Whereas the Falls Church City School Board must authorize someone by resolution as the authorized individual to make application and administer the Clean School Bus Program project partially funded with state trust funds. Now, therefore, be it resolved that the Falls Church City Public School Board hereby authorizes Superintendent Peter Noonan to make an application for, to sign required assurances, and to administer the Clean School Bus Program project on behalf of Falls Church City Public Schools. The foregoing resolution was passed and adopted by the Falls Church City School Board at a regular meeting thereof held on the 25th day of January, 2022. Signed, uh, Laura Down School Board Chair. Could I seek a motion please to um, pass, approve and adopt this resolution? Yes, Dr. Dimmick. I move that the school board approve and adopt resolution 01-22, Virginia Department of Environmental Quality DEQ Clean School Bus Program as presented. Thank you, Dr. Dimmick. May I have a second? Second. Thank you, Vice Chair Gould. All those in favor say aye. 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 All those opposed say no. Thank you, Ms. Goodell. Uh, motion carries. Thank you. Okay, we're moving on. We're close to the end of our agenda this evening, and we're on section 5.02 JA policy update and operations. And I'll um, get us started and then turn it over to Dr. Noonan. Um, for those of you who are watching, just to um, clarify a little bit about this policy, school boards make policy, and uh, we ask our superintendent to then operationalize those policies. I'm just going to give a couple. We've been receiving some uh, emails this week about um, the policy that we passed at our last meeting. And so just wanted to give a couple brief, um, I guess, updates um, or just information about this policy. Um, one is that JA is not seen as a demasking policy. Or I don't know if that's a word, a demasking policy. 
But really the default expectation is that everyone should continue to wear masks. And the reason some questions had um, that we received were about that February 14th date. And we arrived at that date um, based on local health guidance that felt that um, they, that uh, infection cases and uh, infection rates were going down. And, and actually last night on the, on the news on NBC, they said Northern Virginia COVID cases have dropped 40%. So I think we're on, we're definitely on the right track. And um, three weeks from now, we should be in, in even better shape. And the other piece of this is, as um, all experts agree, the number one mitigation strategy is vaccinations. And our teacher staff vaccination rate is 98%. Our 12 to 17 year old vaccination rate is 97%. And our five to 11 year old vaccination rate is 90%. So we are one of the most highly vaccinated school systems in the state. And that's um, where we felt comfortable, you know, looking in a couple of weeks of offering that opt-out mask policy. And I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Noon now to talk more about the operations piece of this. Thank you. Thank you, Chair Downs. You took a lot of the points that I was going to mention oh, tonight, I'm sorry. but that's all right. Um, first and foremost, I want to say um, thank you to the community. As we try to operationalize the board policy of the mask mandate, um, it has been certainly a challenge, but um, our, our community has stepped up greatly, and I just want to thank everybody for doing that. Um, uh, to be honest, we had less than um, less than five people uh, that we had to work with um, this week to help their student get masked, and all everybody has come back masked, and we are very, very appreciative of that um, going forward. So um, a couple of things, and, and, I, and I don't mean to... Um, uh, correct you, Mr. Downs, but I, I do want to make sure we did go back and review all of the vaccination rates because I do think it's really important for everybody to be clear about what the vaccination rates are across the division. So we, we broke it by 5 to 11, 12 to 15, 15 to 17, 18 years and older. And um, one thing that you mentioned, uh, Chair Downs, is that our staff is vaccinated at a 99% rate, and that is absolutely true. Um, and the vast majority of staff are also boosted. But the five to 11 year olds, um, we have um, a, a 1,135 students enrolled uh, that are five to 11, year old, 11 years old. And currently 85% of the five to 11s are vaccinated, um, leaving 15% or 166 that are not vaccinated. Um, 12 to 15 year olds, we have 819 students and 94% of that age group are vaccinated, leaving 6% unvaccinated, which is 48 students. Um, in our 16 to 17 year old population, we have 99% of our students uh, vaccinated and that's 400 students and three are unvaccinated. So 1%. Um, and then our 18 year olds, um, we have 104. Uh, we have nine students that have not been vaccinated. So a 91% vaccination rate. And so when you sum all of those together, um, as, as the um, not numerator and denominator, you end up with 91% of our overall population um, of students. That's not, that does not include staff. So that percentage actually would be higher if we included staff, but 91% of our student population is vaccinated. And that's pretty, pretty strong, um, particularly when you look at additional mitigation strategies that are out there. Um, so a couple of a, a couple of other things and pieces of good news that I think as we begin to operationalize what this looks like as well is as uh, Chair Downs mentioned we are seeing numbers dropping uh, rather precipitously 
um, in, in the Fairfax County Health District, but also in the city of Falls Church. Um, and we, uh, because we're on that downward trend, are, are looking out a week or two uh, and believe we'll be back down to at least, um, at least below the high. Uh, we may be in the next level down before we get to moderate, but we're really hopeful that um, we'll continue to uh, move down. Um, there have been some questions about, um, and you, you've answered a lot of these, but I want to be really clear that all of our adults are going to continue to mask full time. Um, that's really a, an important part of our strategy. We have purchased um, three, K, three N95, not KN, N95 masks for each one of our staff members. We've actually purchased three of them for each member. I, I may have mentioned that to you before, but again, in terms of mitigation, that was important. Um, all students will need to remain masked on buses um, as part of the national transportation um, in this work that's been going on. Um, and then all extracurricular activities, students will need to um, mask unless they're otherwise governed by VHSL. So there's a couple of things in, in, in that to sort of make clear. Um, there are some activities that are, we would consider co-curricular, meaning that if you don't come to this activity, your class grade could suffer. So think about band, choir, orchestra, we don't have orchestra, but band, choir, and some others. Like if you don't show up to the concert, your, you know, your grade may suffer. In those circumstances, um, masks, students who are in opt-out would continue to be allowed to be opted out because that is a co-curricular activity that's tied to a grade. Anything that is um, optional that you wanna participate in, you will need to remain masked regardless of your opt-out status. So if you wanna stay after for a club or an activity, we're gonna ask that you continue to maintain um, your masking. Some other nuances around the masking that I think are important for the board to know uh, and for the community to know is that the rules of engagement around um, contact tracing are beginning to change um, slightly insofar as the reporting to the health department is going to be back down. We won't have to do as much but we still need to contact trace within our schools. So um, there has been sort of a two-step process that we've been put in, that we put into place currently, which is we pause students, we do the contact tracing, we report to the health department, the health department tells us who to quarantine, who to isolate, and then um, to move forward from. And, and that's the second part. Um, we're, get, we're moving away from that second part now. So we will still contact trace. We'll identify who needs to be isolated. And there's a number of, um, there's a number of indicators or factors in there that need to be taken into account in terms of isolation. Um, and so I want to make sure everybody understands that, um, that if you are not masked and considered a close contact, if you're vaccinated, you still don't have to quarantine. So that's a really important thing. So going back to vaccinations are, are the key to um, freedom, if you will, around some of, some of this. But um, if you are a positive case, whether you're a masked person or an opt-out person, you still will need to go into um, quarantine for the first five days, like we've um, been operating since uh, we came back from the winter break. But on days six, seven, eight, nine, and 10, whether you're an opt-out student or a masked student, you still have to mask no matter what. So that is, you cannot opt out of masking during um, the last five days of your quarantine, which actually would be on site. Um, we are reviewing some um, policy decisions regarding 
um, testing protocols and the like, and we are waiting on some information on that. Um, but there, there may be some additional layers of mitigation that would be put in place uh, to ensure that um, we're all taking care of each other. Um, so I, I would really encourage as part of this process, anyone who's listening tonight to participate in the VISTA program, whether you're someone who's going to opt out of masking or stay in masking. Um, today, we, um, we did uh, uh, VISTA test over 600 students. Um, and that was quite a, quite a challenge today, but the team got through that. And that's a really good indicator for us of how much infection there is in the, in the system itself. And we need to know. So, so there seems to be this counterintuitive um, experience. You know, we want the numbers to be low, so we'll stop testing, at, or or we we're going to opt out of testing because I don't want to know if my kid is positive, um, because I don't want them to have to isolate or quarantine. And I I want to just sort of disabuse everybody of that. And and the more testing that we can put in, the better. Um, so I really want to encourage as many people as possible to get into the Vista program. So we're going to push that. Um, we're also going to we're we're also part of the now test to stay pilot um, that's part of the state um, work and so we actually have three students that are in the test to stay pilot right now um, and for those of you that don't know about the test of stay that may be at home um, if you test positive and you are unvaccinated or no i'm sorry if you're a close contact and you are unvaccinated then you still may test to stay so um, I think about our students at Jesse Thackeray, for example, all of them are too young to get vaccinated. So rather than quarantine a whole class, if someone's positive, let's test to stay so that the students that are at JTP can stay instead of quarantining. And that seems to be going very, very well. Um, let's see, uh, what else? Uh, so we have spoken to some of our teachers um, about potential additional mitigation strategies if necessary. Uh, particularly for students that uh, students and staff that may be immunocompromised. Um, and our first strategy is going to uh, be to reach out to um, our community and, and let them know. Um, and, and to be honest, you know, if you look at all of the research and data about who communities listen to, um, it's not the superintendent, it's not the school board, it's really the teacher. So I think in those circumstances where we have an immunocompromised teacher or immunocompromised student, we will likely ask the, the teacher to reach out to the families of the students in their class and say, hey, look, we have someone that's immunocompromised. We'd really appreciate if in our class that you could remain masked. Um, and we think that that would be helpful. There has been some question about those immunocompromised, by those immunocompromised parents, um, can we force kids to be masked? Um, and, and all of that is sort of dependent on kind of where we, where we land. Um, but I, I think to shift that focus or shift that frame a little bit, it will be really important for parents of immunocompromised students to know that we will make modifications necessary with your child to do everything we can to keep them safe. So it may be maybe some more social distancing from um, other students, uh, both students, um, to try to be as equitable as possible. Um, but it would be hard for us in some cases, um, depending on what happens to mandate um, that. So um, just to, to sort of redouble what you said earlier, um, this is, we are, we did not, you all did not, we, I'm, you did <laughs> this, um, you all did not implement a demasking policy. Um, we are going to continue to require masks going forward until such time as we feel like we have a good off-ramp to them. 
but there will be an opt-out uh, available beginning February 14th um, based on the data that we are seeing uh, out there. So with that, um, that's sort of a, a lot of information, but um, be happy to answer any questions that you might have. Thank you so much, Dr. Noon. And I know that it's a lot of work uh, for you and your staff and just know that we really appreciate it as does our community. Any questions from anyone? Yeah, question about the uh, the uh, the N95 masks, which I think is a obviously a, a a great support for teachers who are trying to be uh, you know trying to accommodate and understand how we're to do this. The expiration of the N95 masks, are we? That's great that we're trying to respect the expiration. Are we going to try to make sure we're adhering to whatever the instructions are on the mask that if they expire, they're going to be used, or we're going to be able to re-up those for the teachers? Um, we're, we're starting out with three as sort of the starting point for our teachers, and um, we're hopeful that they will um, that will get them started and they may be able to pick up more okay. along the way. Okay, that's great. Uh, you know, I, I, the one thing I, I, I know there's a lot of debate out there about the efficacy of masks and the like, and I don't know that that's in, in our interest as staff to get into that conversation. I think our interest is just to make sure that people are, are feeling good about um, moving forward with our, with our plan. And then the second question is the uh, the opt out. There's been um, a number of uh, questions about um, a number of families are having reasons for opting out, various reasons, and you know, and, and obviously uh, there's a, a bit of concern about the ostracization of students in classes and and trying to figure out how uh, if they opt out, how to make sure that it's a safe environment for them in terms of you know of being in school. What is your thoughts or how are you approaching the uh, kind of the messaging internally to make sure that all students have a safe environment and a welcoming environment, um, regardless of their opt-out status or not? Yeah, that, that one's still a surprise to me that there are community members that, that believe that we might ostracize students or, or do something that would in some way create anxiety or some sort of trauma. Um, I got an email asking about whether whether or not their child is going to be abused uh, if they if they don't wear a mask. And and all I can say, um, doc, um, Dr. Gould, is that you know our our staff here is the most caring um, group of people that I've ever had a chance to work with. And I don't think that anyone would uh, it, it purposefully do something that would in any way make a make a student feel. Uh, marginalized or ostracized. Um, so we we continue to communicate that with our staff um, that there you know there certainly wouldn't be like retaliation. Uh, you know there's no um, there's no room for that, and and we certainly wouldn't um, wouldn't want to go down that road. So that makes sense. No, I mean this is obviously a big shift for for many. You know, given the the number of mitigation strategies and safety strategies we've been building for the last year and a mm -hmm. half. So. It's understandable. It's a, it's a, it's a big shift for all of us. Sure. So, yeah. Okay. Any other questions, Dr. Noon? I know one question we had was about remote learning, and we're still that's no. only going to be offered for students who are in quarantine or are sick with COVID. Is that correct? That is correct. Um, we we will continue to offer um, streaming only to those students that are are in quarantine or isolation due to a, a COVID case. That's not an option for uh, anyone else. Thank you. Anyone else? Okay, I think, thank you very much, Dr. Nina. That was very informative. And of course, we'll continue to keep the community informed as we um, move forward in the, these next couple of weeks.
And I think that is it for this evening. Any, anything else for the good of the order? Okay, well then I will adjourn this meeting. Thank you very much and have a good evening.